the core principles that we think about is around kind of grouping things more organically into topics, presenting information much more in the way that humans think rather than how computers think, right? Sometimes timing and luck is everything in life. I think if you have these binary goals that you tick off, like a bucket list, right? Kind of disillusioned, right? Like if you reach a really big goal and then you're like, okay, now I've done that. What's next? All right, welcome to Venture Vibes, the show where we hang out with cool people who build cool shit. Today, we're talking with Max, the co-founder and CEO of Spoke AI, the priority inbox for product teams. What's up, Max? What's up? Hey, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. So Max, would you mind spending like 60 seconds telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, happy to. So I'm Max, originally from Germany, based in Berlin at the moment, building my current company, Spoke AI here, but have been in, in this kind of startup ecosystem here basically for all of my career. So decided early on against the more traditional career choices that most of my university colleagues and friends were going for. And that's what brought me to Berlin back then in 2016. And that's what made me then stick around here. And yeah, within sort of I've done different things across the different parts of my journey so far. But at the moment, building Spoke, I'm very focused on people, growth, finance topics. But we're a small team, so basically working across everything that needs to be done, including product as well. So I'm curious, uh, Spoke AI is focusing on product teams right? What's special about product teams? Why are, why are we solving problems for them uh, as a priority? Uh, yeah. Instead of yeah, fair. engineering team, you know, CEOs, CTOs. Fair question. I, th I, I should say product and engineering kind of oh, as okay. a group, I think, to be, to be more inclusive there. And I mean, why, why do we build for, for them? Because I think their communication and workflows are quite complex or more complex compared to some other areas where it's maybe more standardized, more linear, right? Like maybe in customer service or sales. And mm. so for us, it is a more exciting to build something for, for this complexity. And I think secondly, we think that only now the technology is there to actually build something that works well to support these kinds of workflows and this, this complexity. And, and I would say the last, the last point just comes from a more kind of personal point of view, because my, my team and I, we've all been working in this kind of, in these kinds of teams and settings for the last years for the, for most of our career. So that's sort of what we're most familiar with in terms of right. how a team works. And that's why we started there. So, so people, when people see inbox, we usually see email. Right. But that's not the case, right? You're basically trying to summarize across different channels and have an actual, you know, quote unquote inbox summary for people. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So inbox is sort of working title because we're starting with communication, all of your internal communication across kind of the core productivity collaboration stack, right? So tools like Slack, Jira, or Linear, Confluence, Notion, Miro, Figma, these kind of core collaboration tools. And bringing all of that communication together and making it more accessible and digestible with things like prioritization, summarization. So taking an AI first approach to how we can access and display that information and that communication for you. Yeah. And it's a problem I think all of us can relate to here, right? All three of us. I get so many notifications across email, Slack, Figma, Google Docs, everything. I think 
to some extent, Slack was trying to be that universal inbox by developing integrations, Slack bots, things like that. So a lot of things come through Slack. But I think that the interesting twist here is AI first, and I want to hear more about what makes this approach a little bit different. Because right now with, with Slack, it's still, I don't know if dumb is the right word, but it's still like very linear, right? And so if I have 100 notifications, I get pinged 100 times in time order. There's no priority. There's no good way to manage what to respond to first. It just feels overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the key problems there, I think. And also what each each tool that you connect to Slack behaves differently in how it kind of interacts with Slack, which also doesn't make it easier. There's a lot that can be done to improve the way that this currently works. But some of the kind of the core principles that we think about is around kind of grouping things more organically into topics, presenting information much more in the way that humans think rather than how computers think, right? So it's not like channels and and tools, but rather it's topics, conversations. And those can happen across different channels, across different tools, right? And yep. in fact, in reality, I think you you probably both know this well, you often have duplicate communication where you have the same conversation happening maybe in Slack and in a Jira ticket. And so this is already happening, right? So we need to kind of bring those together. So really presenting it to, to you more organically as topics, bringing the relevant information together. And that sort of is the basis. So this clustering is then the basis to doing further cool stuff with AI, like summarization, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I think a natural next step is knowledge base, right? That's something we we kind of chatted about that. That's another problem. Everything is scattered. It's hard to find information. Um, so stereotypically, right, EU uh, is very strong in terms of uh, privacy standard protection for the customers, but also, uh, I don't know if it's fair to say, but uh, unfriendly to start tech startups, right? So as an entrepreneur, what's your take on that? Do you think that's the right approach? You know, what's the pros and cons to start a company in EU? Yeah. There's a, I mean, that's a fair question, and I would definitely agree that my impression is that it's more business-friendly in general in the U.S. to start a company, etc. I think there's like advantages and disadvantages, right? I think regulation in certain areas can have benefits and can create sort of value for the end consumer, but also for, for business customers, especially like relevant also for an area like AI potentially, right? That's very sort of new and has potentially very big implications on things like data privacy, data security, et cetera. That being said, of course, the, the most like famous example of kind of over-regulation, I think, from a US perspective in Europe is GDPR, right? <laughs> Which leads to like countless checkboxes and, and pop-ups on every website. And that's something that, of course, then doesn't add so much value and is rather annoying for the end user. So you have to find kind of the right balance. But I think I'm optimistic that for certain areas, like for example, AI, broadly speaking, we can use regulation to create certain advantages when building in Europe. And I'm saying this, although we're building a, a language-based product, which is sort of catering to anyone in the world who's working in English primarily, right? Wait, can, sorry. Can you can you elaborate on that? Like, what do you mean by advantages? Uh, do you mean like regular regulatory captures? Like, how does that work? No, I think like not not. I mean, regulatory capture I think is a problem that also also we see in the U.S. potentially right now, right? With like big companies lobbying a lot, especially around AI. What I think more, what I was thinking more about is that if I look at it from perspective of startup, right? 
if there are certain regulations, for example, around data privacy, etc., then you're much sooner confronted with these topics. And you might, for example, build solutions for this or implement sort of a higher standard from the get-go in some areas like that, which can be an advantage in, in de- depends on what you're building, right? But it can be advantageous, I think, no. to have this high or have a certain standard in certain areas from the beginning and not just fix something or implement something after it's gone wrong. Got it. Yeah, I mean, if if you're serious about starting a company these days, you almost certainly have to confront similar regulations, right? Even in the US, if California, for example, right, is yeah. sort of leading the charge on similar regulations with, I think it's called C- CCPA and things like that, that are similar to GDPR, you certainly could make the argument that you can start the startup in a low regulation environment. And then once you have the capital, you've proven the idea, then you would have the money to like. But if even in the US, you have to worry about a few states that have more strict regulations, it might be better to just quote unquote, get it over with early days. Yeah, possibly. But it's an it's an interesting one, right? And it's something that's also going to shift a lot in the next couple of years. Like they're discussing this AI act here in Europe. I think there was just right. the, the presidential decree or something uh, regarding yeah, AI uh, in the US. Yeah. So obviously, like developing very quickly and interesting to see how that how that looks in terms of us versus europe as well yeah have you max ever considered since you have a distributed team and i'm sure you've traveled around quite a bit have you considered starting uh, a business outside the eu before for those reasons or was it really never uh, a serious option for you so considered yes absolutely and i think many people in europe think about like where to set up their company within Europe because there are very big differences in terms of how business friendly countries are right for example the UK is much more business friendly in some aspects than Germany but many companies of course also think about just setting up a a US entity especially if they're building something that is where the US is clearly going to be the biggest market and I mean this is the case for basically every single SaaS product right right so Yes, it's a it's a consideration, but what many companies do is that they start in Europe and then they validate the US market and then they set up an additional entity there and kind of set things up more more permanently over there. Then also when hiring maybe first team members in the US, etc. So that's more the approach that we're looking at because most of our users are also based in the US. Yeah. Yeah. So Max, we're going to take a step back. And let's like really try to understand who you are and where you come from a little bit more. Do you have any stories about your childhood or early days that could paint a picture of, you know, sort of who you are growing up? Yeah, of course. So I was born in the west of Germany in Cologne. uh, Oh, beautiful city. Yeah. Have you been? I have. I studied in Germany for a semester. Nice. Okay. So you said a German name, right? Well, not intended to be, but it is, it is a last name, I think in some European countries. I'm not sure if Germany is one of them. Yeah, could be. Could it's be. a coincidence, though. <laughs> so you didn't get the German name for your semester abroad. No, but I was um, <laughs> no. um, born in Cologne, um, but then also lived in, in the south in Munich, which you might have been to during your time here as well. Just a couple um, days. Uh, just Oktoberfest, probably one weekend, right? Um, Lovely food. Lots of... I had pork shank. It was really good. Nice. Yeah, it's also a nice place. And then basically moved around quite a bit. So I think I've lived in six or seven different cities up until the point when I arrived in, in Berlin. And I think moving moving around a lot as a 
as a kid kind of has obvious advantages and disadvantages, right? But I think for me, that's been something that's been very kind of influential in terms of having to always adapt to new environments, sometimes learning a new language, right? So for example, even between Cologne and Bavaria, there's like very strong local accents, but then I also moved to the UK and to Italy later. So yeah, always having new kind of cultural surroundings and language and people, I think helps helped a lot in terms of developing sort of an open mindset and just being kind of flexible, adaptable, and kind of going with the flow a little bit. So what kind of a kid were you? Were you like a good student, straight A's, everything? Did you get in trouble all the time? What, what were you like? So I was, a, I was never the kind of the best student in class. I always tried, I think I, I usually found the right amount, kind of a very good like 80-20 kind of uh, calibration. So usually got like decent grades, mostly stayed out of trouble, but did that without putting in like too much effort. And then later on, like as you can choose a little bit more, for example, in university, right? Like what you spend your time on, what you study. For me, that was economics back then. Then it got a little bit more interesting when you could actually choose topics that were bit more exciting. So why economics? When you when you got to university, why'd you pick that path? Were you always interested in it? And what'd you want to do with that? What did I want to do with that? That's a good question. I don't know many people know that going into university, to be fair. But uh, right. why it was interesting to me is because um, it's a very, I think, and I, I certainly didn't realize this back then before I started studying it, but it's like a fairly recent field where mm -hmm. a lot is like has actually recently developed and there's a lot of ongoing experimentation. So mm -hmm. it sounds scary, but a lot of the stuff that's a lot of the policies that are being implemented by our central banks, for example, right? They're doing this for the first time. Like <laughs> all of this stuff hasn't been done 20 times before. So it's basically all a big experiment with very high stakes, lots of variables, right? And that I found quite intriguing to understand a little bit more like Okay, what is the what is the theory behind it, and what what goes into into kind of yeah, setting up experiments like that? Yeah, let's just try to print twenty trillion dollars. You know, see how it works. <laughs> exactly, that was cool, but I never had the intention of actually pursuing that. Like, I think the the typical career path for people that I studied with was really to then go work in a central bank or something like that, and that wasn't really my intention going into it. Okay. Cool. All right. So after college, you, I guess you started as an investment analyst, right? I guess, what does that involve and what's your biggest learning from that? Yeah, that was during university, actually. So I was studying oh, okay. abroad in, in Italy, doing economics at the time, right? And so I thought, okay, I'm already kind of abroad. So maybe I can try working a little bit instead of doing a semester abroad when I'm already abroad. So I worked as an investment analyst for half a year. And basically the main job there is, is very similar to like a junior VC person. So it's a lot of scouting and screening, which was nice at the time because my job was basically to learn about the startup ecosystem in Europe mostly. That was their kind of focus. And a big part of that, of course, was Berlin, which traditionally has most of the startup activity happening in, in Germany. And so that was my job to look at relevant potential investments there. They were mostly focused on fintech and insurtech. And mm. that's also how I ended up later on starting my first 
real job in fintech as well. Sounds like a great learning experience and you got paid for it to do it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, was definitely fun at the time. And it was also, I think, good to do it early on because I figured out that it's not for me because you're definitely <laughs> on the sidelines, right? You see people yeah. doing stuff, building companies, but you're not really involved in that. What for me, the main learning back then was that like this kind of investment group or it was like a corporate venture capital um, part of the insurance company Allianz. And that was a huge culture clash, right? So there's like super traditional insurance company with like probably 200,000 employees trying to invest into startups, which might only have a couple of weeks runway left when they're trying to raise their rounds, right? But then you have this huge corporate with like very that's very slow traditionally and has like lots of approval processes etc so that was an interesting interesting culture clash for sure so after that how did you i guess after after the uh, job insurance company you are tra more transiting into like a the tech company then eventually went into entrepreneur right so how does that transition work in your experience yeah so that was for me very felt very natural, right? Because I learned about the startup ecosystem doing that job during university. I also even learned about the company that I ended up joining while doing this kind of screening and market analysis. And and so that was kind of a very, felt like a very natural move. And then I, I moved to Berlin in 2016, started with an internship in that, in that fintech startup, and then ended up staying for three years, which wasn't really planned initially. When you graduated, did you know that you wanted to join a startup based on your previous experience that you wanted to be part of that team? Yeah, I think like not that team specifically, but I was pretty sure that I wanted to work in a non-corporate environment. Mm -hmm. And I guess like the typical the two career paths that everyone was taking was either consulting or investment banking, which seemed very glamorous and exciting. I think when you're graduating university, I don't know if that was similar for for either of you, but like that's obviously like high paid jobs, right? And they still have a certain amount of, I don't know, not glamour, but like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And and so those- No one's the, ashamed of their kids for being an inve investment banker. Yeah, exactly. Right. But I kind of didn't want that super corporate environment because I felt like I could probably learn more by doing more stuff hands-on and helping to build a company. You joined N26, you were there for almost three years. Did you learn anything interesting there? What made you move on to the next gig? My my impression was you learn much more actually like building a helping to build a company than you ever did in university or school. Team, we were around 50 people when I joined. We had very like typical startup style, obviously very scarce resources. So we had a so I definitely learned how to always optimize and negotiate every contract three times, you know, and kind of make things as efficient as possible. So do as much as possible with as little as possible. I think that was one thing that I learned early on. And the other thing that was exciting for me to learn as part of that experience was how to work in cross-functional teams, because we did lots of stuff that involved, obviously, think like legal aspects, a lot of product topics, etc. Right. So you spent time learning how building a new startup works. How big was N26 when you were when you were there? How many employees? So when I joined, I think we were around 50. Okay. And then during my time there, we grew to about 1,500. 1,500? 
Yeah. So this wow. was this was quite a yeah quite intense kind of team growth because we also had certain teams internally like customer support for example. Right. right. But still, it's a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, you went from fifty to a thousand and five hundred. That's like thirty x. Right. In three years. In three years. That's nuts. And And how'd you go from that experience and then to Zurich and then, you know, to entrepreneurship? Obviously, you you mentioned that you didn't really feel a cultural fit for larger corporations. So you wanted to be at a startup. But at what point did you make up your mind that has to be my startup? I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah. I mean, that's also like related to kind of what then made me want to move on, I think. Growing to that team size is one thing. Obviously, that comes with like lots of changes in culture. Like you need more process, right? Things get slower. But we were also building in fintech, so that kind of was an additional effect. Where of course the regulator at some point is looking more closely at what you're doing. If you have more, like if you have millions of customers, then at some point people start kind of looking looking at you more closely. So that slowed things down, I would say, more than it would have otherwise in a non fintech company and so that also goes back to regulation in the eu i guess and especially in germany and this kind of slowing down of how fast we could test things and and learn as a team then made me want to move on and then i was very kind of opportunistically joined the the mobility company which at the time was around 15 to 20 people so again very very small team and some of my uh, former colleagues had moved there. So then I, I said, why not go and jump into a new industry and learn about a new topic? I think in the US, you had already had e-scooters for a couple of years. So probably wasn't, wasn't as novel. So for Cirque, you guys ended having a successful exit, right? Yeah. So we were yeah acquired just before COVID. So that was like, I think, big, big learning that sometimes timing and luck is everything in life. Because I think the deal with the acquisition with Bird closed in in January, and then in March, COVID kind of hit completely across the board, right? And that was a big shock to the mobility ecosystem because it's mostly tourists using e-scooters. So, yeah, that was that was interesting timing. Okay, so let's talk about your first startup. It's called Plant Club, right? Yeah. I guess where does the name come from? And what did you choose to take the dive into the actual startup world by starting your own company? Yeah, so this was 2020, then during COVID. And basically, after like after I'd been part of two companies that scaled very fast, two like consumer companies, right? FinTech Mobility scaled super fast, team grew super quickly. I felt that it would be cool to get the experience of bootstrapping a company and building something with a very different mindset and much more kind of scarce resources. And I then teamed up with a a friend that I used to work with at the fintech company before he was kind of, he was leading one of the product teams there. We had worked together for three years and knew each other really well. And he was doing some research. So he had also recently left his, his company that he went to after N26 which was a fintech in the US. And he was doing user research around like what he would like to build next. And then very randomly, I think, because he was always looking on Dribble for like design inspiration. He saw a lot of like, there's a lot of mock-ups and kind of projects that people present there that 
somehow use plants in their like visual presentation just because it looks nice. And that's how he started looking into it to see if there's something cool that could be built there. First on the consumer side, any kind of like app around this or any any kind of business model that makes sense. And then, yeah, I joined when he was doing this early ideation. And then we decided to pivot to and focus on B2B and then build a B2B services business out of it initially. And he, but full credit to, to my co-founder, he came up with the name and he did all of that early kind of branding and user research. Is this Jack? Yeah. Co-founder? Exactly. Did you know you wanted to start a business together first and then came up with the, an idea or did you, you know, he already had the idea and then you just, you know, were like, Hey, can I join? How did that happen? Yeah. So we didn't have that plan originally. We knew that we had fun working together at N26, but then of course, like each did worked at a different company and he was, he was researching and then asked me, Hey, I'm thinking about building something in this space. Do you want to join? And that's when we got together and we kind of found out that we both thought very, had very similar feelings around like super fast scaling venture backed businesses and that we were both looking for a slightly different experience and, and building something with a different mindset. And then it was a, it was a good fit. And then we started to look into it together. Got it. So how did plant club go and what led you to spoke AI? So I think it was, it, it went really well in hindsight, despite COVID, right? So kind of the concept is helping companies like design greener, more sustainable workspaces with this plant subscription. And we started super hands-on initially, Jack and I just did everything ourselves. So we would re- literally like, we don't know anything about interior design and plants, right? But we would just go like, go to a company and then and or work with the architect and help them make a nice green space and just put put plants in there. And then luckily we found people who know much more about these topics early on. And now the team is around 15 people doing a fantastic job running the business across Berlin, Hamburg, Vienna, and soon more cities as well. Working with more than 100 companies, really cool network of partners like architects, real estate developers, etc. So that's really cool to see how that still keeps growing, even though Jack and I are not operationally involved anymore. At what point did the idea for Spoke AI come up? How did you go about discovering the problem? And since you bootstrapped Plant Club, did you also bootstrap Spoke AI? Yeah, great question. So essentially, as we were bringing on people who were much better at what they're doing than Jack and I were at Plant Club, we were kind of freed up a little bit to think about, okay, what do we want to build next potentially, right? And have since we both had worked in these cross-functional teams and like startup scale-ups, we were very familiar with the problem of having kind of this communication and workflow chaos in these cross-functional teams, right? And it's something that we, of course, suffered from a lot as teams in the previous roles and was something that was kind of in the back of our minds from these previous jobs as something that we might be able to solve at some point in the future. But then I think what really happened at the same time in 2021 was also that AI was starting to accelerate a lot, right? And that kind of caught our attention because it's, again, a new area that we might like learn lots of exciting new things in. So we started to, to look into how we might use 
the latest kind of AI advancements to address some of those problems that we knew from our previous jobs. And then really started to play around with it a little bit. Like back in 21, summarization was sort of the obvious use case and sort of the one of the use cases that the models were best at back then. And so that's where we where we started thinking about the idea for Spoke. We built an MVP that summarizes within Slack. That was sort of our the first product that we put into hands of users very early on to get user feedback. And then um, started iterating from there. Yeah, obviously didn't anticipate that AI would develop that quickly, but that's obviously been super cool to to start working in the area and start learning about AI before it really started to accelerate to the point where it is now. And so in 2021, when you decided, hey, AI is really starting to pick up, we're going to try this thing out. What was the, did you have one experience or did something come out back then? Was it GPT-3? Because this was before chat GPT, right? Yeah, yeah, way before it. So this was the private beta of GPT-3. And there was like a little bit of like hype on Twitter around like who got access to GPT-3 and people would like tweet at, at Greg Brockman and be like, hey, can you give us beta access? And this is what we tried to do and stuff like that. So um, this is when we first like started started noticing and started testing it. Um, and then, yeah, obviously that was much less powerful than the models that are out there today. What's up to follow-ups there? So what did you see in your co-founder for you to choose continue? you know, building another company with him. Also, I'm curious, seems like, is Spoke also bootstrapped? No, so with Spoke, we actually raised uh, money from okay. investors. That's a more traditional venture path. Right. Why build a second company together with Jack? I think because the first one went fairly well. That's the first <laughs> thing, right? Right. And, but more importantly, working together as co-founders, of course, is like very different than working together on some projects as part of a much larger organization, right? But what we learned building Plant Club together is that I think we had very, that we had very similar values and things that are important to us. And sort of the way that, that we, that we work was felt very natural, right? So we didn't need a lot of process or meetings or anything like that. But you, you know, when you sort of, when you work with someone and you find kind of naturally the right cadence of this is something I should share. This is something we should discuss. This is something we don't need to discuss. This kind of, this kind of level of interaction that is very natural. Can you give me a more specific example? Like what you say that, you know, values align, what type of values? One or two examples. So if you, if you say typical example, right, we split topics between us, right? Mm. And that means that I didn't, I don't necessarily know like everything that he's working on. And he doesn't necessarily know everything that I'm working on, right? So if I'm building a financial model. He's not interested in that, right? But right. especially if you if you separate things and have sort of clear responsibilities, then I think being being super transparent with everything you do and proactively sharing information with each other, I think that's sort of one of the things that that's super important to to both of us that worked really well. So for the for the previous one, you chose to bootstrap. Yeah, uh, this one you are taking venture money. Like, what's the difference between the two approaches, and why are you picking a different one this time? So, with Plant Club, we're building in a very old school industry. It's not digitalized. It's very fragmented, right? So the bar is relatively lower than mm -hmm. in B two B SaaS productivity, and so that's why it lent itself to like building a company more slowly, more sustainably in a bootstrap way. 
I would say, with Spoke after we started our early experimentation and, and iteration, we saw that AI in general was kind of picking up speed. And of course, that it would also be fairly expensive to build a product that works to some degree, at least, right? A first version that, that works and creates some value for the user. And to be able to build something that we were kind of, that we would be happy with, we knew that we would have to bring on some, some good people to support us in the early team. Got it. And how far along were you when you raised your first round for Spoke? Did you have a working product? Was it, you know, prototypes of some kind? Yeah, it was a prototype and kind of a semi-working product. We were kind of onboarding first users to the first product as we were raising the round. So there was like a little bit of user feedback, but not really a lot of usage data or anything like that. Yeah. Got it. So I have two more questions about Spoke for you, Max. One, mm -hmm. what's your what's your biggest takeaway in learning so far now that you're doing, you know, a, a more serious, if you will, a, a different type of startup than you have done before? Uh, and two, how are things going? So I think biggest learning and team, I can answer that together because they're very related. So the team is now 16 people, including myself and, the, and my two co-founders. I think biggest learning is that from the beginning, we set ourselves the goal of building a very diverse team. And that doesn't just mean a couple of different, different nationalities, right? And, but that also means, of course, gender diversity and a couple of, couple of things like that. And for us, since we were really disciplined about that from the get-go, it actually worked out super well so far and kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Obviously, if you have a diverse team at some point, you get way more diverse applicants. And that in turn then, I think for us is starting to translate into real advantages also for the product that we're building. Because if you're building a, a product, especially in AI for a like, global audience, very diverse user base, right? Then having all of these different perspectives in the team really isn't just like a nice HR statistic, but it really has tangible advantages. Like, for example, you're much more likely to identify certain biases in like training data, things like that, right? So that's, I think the biggest learning is sort of the, the real business advantages of diversity and the discipline, how quickly discipline pays off if you're making this a, a priority. Okay, so I have to follow up on that. So <laughs> you mentioned about diversity and, and it's interesting you also mentioned diversity of perspectives. Right, which yeah. I, I agree that's very important, but oftentimes I, I think people mistake kind of the appearance of diversity versus the real diversity in perspectives. So as a as a founder, I guess how do you how do you balance that, right? Because you don't want to hire for diversity just for the sake of appearing diverse. You want you actually want people coming with different takes on things, with different perspectives, different approaches, different methodologies. How do you actually achieve that? <laughs> yeah, I think that then comes down really to to your process, right? And how you evaluate candidates. And for us, like we involve the the team very heavily in the in the interview process, for example, and also have people from completely unrelated teams then interview a candidate. In the interview, you have to get a feeling for for certain things that you define as being a good kind of proxy for how so for diversity in 
quotation marks, right? So what can this person bring to the team? And like one one thing that we like to think about is culture ad that's related to diversity. So often you have this kind of this, this thing of culture fit, right? Is this a culture fit for a team, which mm-hmm. doesn't really doesn't really I think it's not really a good expression because then you end up you might end up with like twenty people that are very similar in terms of where they're from, education, their beliefs, right, their values, etc. So we always try to think about culture ad and something unique that this person can bring to the team that we do not have yet. And this could be this could be anything, right? This could be where they're from, where they've lived, what they've studied, in which area they've worked before. But but there's also a a cost for diversity, right? Because besides diverse, you also want cohesion in your team. Yeah. Um so how do you how do you balance that, right? Because people if if only focus on diversity, you might as sacrificing cohesion. Uh, especially when you want to move fast. You don't have time to listen to 10 different perspectives. You kind of just want to move forward. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a great point and something that we've also noticed. I think what helps is two things. So one, we are kind of limiting for operational reasons our team to European time zones. And then I think the other thing is that, of course, yeah, cohesion is one thing, but a, of course, you also just need to have some kind of structure in the team, right? So like then you don't want to have 12 people debating something with 12 different opinions, but at some point it has to be clear like who makes the decision and data team, who makes the decision in the product and design team, etc. So that you get the input and the benefit of having these perspectives, but it's right. also very clear kind of who makes the decision when. Right. It's not a pure democracy when, you, when it comes to running companies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think this this is a really interesting topic and we can easily spend another hour talking about this, about diversity and how to do it right in the pros and cons. But I do want to move us on to our standard question that we have for every guest. What is success to you, Max? How do you, def- how do you define success in the short and long term? So let's say in five years, what would success looks like, look like to you? And in 60, 80 years, when you're old, and you look back, what would have been a successful life? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think when you're working in an early stage startup and building a company, right, you have to sometimes force yourself to think ahead a couple of years, but I rarely think ahead five years, let alone 60 to 80 years. So that's a, that's a really challenging one, but maybe the kind of the way that I would think about the question, what does success look like is a little bit, I look at myself and what do I care about? And then I look at the people around me. And those are two, I think, two different levels. And for myself, what success looks like and has looked like at least in the in the past years, and I think that's why it will also apply to the next five to 10 years, is co- continuously learning something new. In the past, I've done that by just going into a new area all the time, not st- staying in FinTech for my entire career, for example. So putting myself in a position where I don't get bored, I learn something new, something interesting as as much as possible. So that's one of the definitions for success for myself. But then the other thing that is, I think, super important is looking at at my team members, looking at people around me, right? And the thing that I think is, is, is super important to me there is to see people grow in their roles, also by learning, of course, so also setting them up so that they can learn and develop in their roles and 
mean, we've seen this in our first company where people kind of joined early on and are now running the company, right? So kind of really developing through a bunch of different roles. And we're also seeing it now at Spoke where people are taking more and more responsibility and having greater impact every day. So I think that's, a, for me, also a very big indicator of success. To push on the second question a little bit more, um, what about you know your life? Um, do you have a definition of what you want in life for it to be a success to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I don't. I don't really have like any concrete milestones that I need to that I'm thinking about that I need to reach. I think. I think about more about it in terms of like what are things that I that I care about. So for example, flexibility, being able to like live potentially in a couple of different places, right? Things like that I definitely care about. But I don't connect it so much with like a kind of like a bucket list concept or something mm-hmm. like this, you know? Like I have to climb this mountain or I have to, I don't know, reach this valuation with my company or something like this. Mm-hmm. Like I think if you have these, at least my thought process behind it is that if you have these very kind of binary goals that you take off, like a bucket mm-hmm. list, right? I think this can then sometimes be a little bit, not disappointing, but you're kind of disillusioned, right? Like if you reach a really big goal and then you're like, okay, now I've done that. What's next? Right? So I, I like to think more about concepts that are kind of that can that you can pursue hopefully all of your life and that you will keep getting um, value and satisfaction from. That's pretty deep. It's also interesting to observe. So we ask this question to all our guests, right? And usually people are pretty ambitious and it's very goal-driven and they usually tie very deeply their success to the success of the product or the company they're building. But mm-hmm. it sounds like you are taking a much longer term perspective, right? But I guess how much of your happiness, your success will be related to the company you're building? So you mentioned the team, you mentioned the people around you, but you're not mentioning the actual business. Yeah, I think in the in the short term, of course, a lot of your ha- of my happiness is linked to how we're doing as a team and as a company, right? But right. I separate that a little bit from like because Hansen was asking like really the sort of like longer term thinking about your life, mm-hmm. right? And I know that I will I'll be working on probably many different projects and companies over the course of my life. So that's why I don't connect the two super closely if I look at this really long timeline. That makes sense. I'm I'm curious because I'm sure that like in answering this question of like what does success look like, there's also huge cultural differences in how people answer, right? <laughs> so yeah. Like, what are what are some people typically saying? Is it like I I don't know? I need a hundred million on my bank, or I need to buy this car, or I need to live in I don't know. Yeah, that's my answer. Uh, no, I think <laughs> the the number one frequent word people mention is impact. Right? People want impact on on the people around them, on the world, and that usually is which is a very vague term. It's very vague. It's yeah, yeah. It's, it's very vague, but, but overused. Uh, I think impact. Yeah. 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 I mean, Hansen and I also ponder upon this question a lot, right? And it, there's no... We've asked 20 people and we still don't know. <laughs> yeah, still um, know. Yeah. Though I think there's... I have two thoughts on this. One is, paradoxically, Max seems to have the least amount of thought around what success is long-term, but also the most profound thought, yeah. in my opinion. 
um, because we, we talk a big game about what's important and how to shape the world and how to climb these great mountains. That's, that's you, by the way. Right, right. But it's, <laughs> I think paradoxically, that is actually shallower. Um, yeah. I think there's something, you know, working in product, for example, sometimes we get too attached to solutions. Like, oh, I have to build an AI app that can talk to you, that can do this, this, and this, and that's going to be a great world. But, you know, that's like sometimes describing a faster horse when really what you want is a car. Whereas I think with Max and interestingly with, if you remember Hidi, when we introduced, when we interviewed him a while back, he's from mm. Prague. He had a similar answer that was not around specific goals to check off a list. Right. It was more about attributes and like aspects of life. So he's like, I want to be near nature. I want to spend time with my family. You know, I want to provide a good living for people I love. And, and I think in a way that's actually a, a, a more problem oriented because we're humans. There's a yeah. lot of ways to make us feel accomplished. Could be a million, a hundred million bucks in the bank. It could be a nice fighter jet, right? It could be, it could be some invention that you introduce and a Nobel prize. Like a lot of those things can bring you those feelings and you don't have to get so attached to one yeah. path or another. Yeah. I mean, th those fucking Europeans, man, they, they figured out. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was my second thought, right? Is Max, you were asking, is there a trend now? I think we've only interviewed three entrepreneurs from Europe so far. So it's a very small sample size. So I, I'd be careful to extrapolate, but it does seem like there's a more tendency to associate things with more abstract human experiential aspects that you chase, like feelings and things that, that are vague that could be achieved in different ways versus Americans are vague in a different way, I feel like. We talk about impact. We Americans, people here talk about <laughs> impact. They talk about changing the world, but it feels less human in a way. It feels less emotional, less connected to how we really feel day to day and more about like, oh, after I die, I have reshaped the world. And that is a great thing, even though I don't know what that needs to be. It just needs to be something big. Yeah. We're going to have a Chinese entrepreneur on the show soon. So let's, let's ask. That's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. That would have been or Max, we can become Chinese entrepreneurs ourselves. <laughs> I don't so. think you're Chinese enough. So. Wow. We can be one and a half Chinese <laughs> entrepreneurs. How about that? Between the two of us. <laughs> um, I mean, do you, do you, it's an interesting one though. I wanted to ask, do you identify kind of when it comes to these kinds of like more cultural questions, do you identify as American, as Chinese, as something in between? I'll let Seed go first. Oh, I'm fucking hundred percent Chinese, man. <laughs> no, self-proclaimed. Uh, yeah. Self-proclaimed. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think I'm, I'm individual first. That's probably not a very Chinese idea stereotypically i think that it is though like you know one thing i like about chinese culture is it's actually pretty diverse right because it has not such a long culture you can find whatever you like <laughs> in the 2000 year of history and, and identify with that and i i think i i take a lot of pride in in the ability to appreciate the beauty in my culture but that's not to say i'm not exploring the beauties of other cultures but yeah very diplomatic yeah. <laughs> yes. Approved by, by CCP. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's a, it's a tricky topic because there's so much that goes with the word these days, right? Because of politics, because of social movements, because of all these things. When you slap a label like Chinese and American, it comes with so much connotation depending on who you're talking to. But to me, I certainly identify as Chinese. I was born and raised there. You know, I spent most of my life there. But at the same time, I have never lived there as an adult. I have never had a job in China, right? I've, I've been in the US since I started college. I came here when I was not even 18, right? And so I certainly recognize that it's more of a hybrid perspective at this point. Cool. 
So we have limited time here. So Max, I'm just gonna dive right in. Deep questions. Spoke AI, you've got AI in the name. Um, so you probably think a lot about AI. And we were chatting about this earlier before we recorded the show, the ethics and morals of AI. And we've had several founders come on the show and talk about you know, this idea that, oh, AI is gonna be this great thing. Sure, yeah, there's gonna be some trade-off. Some people are gonna lose their jobs. Uh, and maybe it wouldn't be equal across all of society, but we're gonna figure it out. People always move on. But I think you, you shared that you have some thoughts around AI's impact on different classes and the dynamics between social classes. So yeah, tell us a little bit more about what you think. Yeah, I think it's a super interesting topic and something I'd love to get your thoughts on as well. Because in the past, right, when there's been like big technological change, tip, like often like classic example, industrial revolution, right? Um, it was always more of the, the blue color, the workers being hit the hardest and those jobs. And I think even now in the more recent past, it's like the same discussion, like self-driving cars, you know, oh, we, we're not going to have truck drivers and taxis anymore, taxi drivers anymore. So that was always kind of the narrative is that technology hurts the kind of the more vulnerable or maybe less educated people in, in society. And now with AI, it's super interesting because now you see AI replacing lawyers, replacing kind of more these white color jobs, right? And I mean, making them, making them more efficient and or replacing. And that's why I think it's a super interesting question to think about what does that mean? Does that mean AI has a different impact on society, on different levels of society, as opposed to other technological change? And how do we then deal with that, right? How do we, how do we react to that? And what's your take on it first? So my take on it is that the jobs that are being, so first of all, it always takes longer than expected for technology to actually like arrive in the reality of, e of the economy, right? And to be adopted by companies, to be implemented in workflows, et cetera. And so I think it will be, of course, as always, much more gradual and smooth than the headlines and hysteria will kind of make you make you think. And it will gradually make certain people, like lawyers, for example, more efficient through new tools that they have, right? And then this, this will give those people, I mean, these are then typically lawyers, product managers, could be different types of people, typically very educated people that will then kind of, their jobs will evolve. I don't know where, but they will start doing gradually different things within the company, within a, another company maybe, as AI takes over the most manual, repetitive tasks of their day-to-day -day jobs. But I think that it will be pretty, pretty smooth on a sort of, on a societal level. And there will not be a point where there's like, oh shit, now we have 5 million unemployed people in this country and we need to really like have big structural kind of programs around re-educating people, anything like that. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I think that's been true throughout history for previous technologies, for sure, right? And one of the reasons for that, I think, is the speed of adoption. So two things, right? One is the development of technology tends to take more time than we anticipate, right? Like nuclear cold fusion is always 30 years away, and AGI is probably always 15 years away. And so people, we tend to over-oscillate, like we tend to over-correct. When we see ChatGPT, the immediate result is, oh my God, this is going to destroy all of humanity, even though we're nowhere near that. Though I think the other aspect is uh, distribution, right? So 
in the past, if you, let's say, like machines were replacing factory workers, well, it takes a long time to develop machines and to distribute machines to slowly start replacing workers. And it took decades. It took, you know, a generation or two before that happened. But with the advent of the internet and with compute being as prevalent as it is, each one of us own these devices that have so much more power than we use. We scroll Reddit, we scroll Instagram. This thing's a mini supercomputer. It can do a lot more than that. And so I do think if anything's gonna have a discontinuous quick impact on society, it's going to spread via the internet and it's going to leverage the edge compute that we have today. That's a surplus, a huge surplus sitting around. But I do hope you're right. Yeah, yeah I think it's hard to reason about those questions at a societal level. I'm of the opinion that it's hard to stop a train. So you just got to jump on the train and <laughs> when the train is uh, destroying the world, you have a better chance of survival, right? I think translate that to what means to AI is, is it's a huge leverage. I think we can all, all see that. So no matter, no matter which field you're in, no matter you're a lawyer, you're a programmer, whatever, you have to leverage the tool. So I think at a personal level, right, you should embrace the technology, just like Hansen said from the previous generations of uh, evolutions of technologies. The, the group who embrace it will be the one survive, right? Instead of, that, that's why I have a lot of problems with regulations. But anyways, that's a different topic. Yeah, definitely interesting, but different topic. The other thing I wanted to dig into, Max, is the class dynamic stuff, right? You mentioned that in the past, typically technologies had displaced more, suppose, lower class people because their work is more automatable, right? But it seems like AI is starting with the middle, upper middle even, right? Do you think that's going to be the case? Do you do you believe that AI, as it continues to develop, will be threatening the doctors and the lawyers and the engineers and the product people of the world more so than, you know, the food delivery workers and the factory workers? I, I mean, at least for the foreseeable future, yes, I think so. I think what's exciting about this is that whenever a shift like this occurs, right, humans are very bad at, at imagining, for example, all of the new jobs that are being created. And we're already right. seeing this this now, right? Like there's like now people kind of checking the outputs of language models and like doing some like data cleaning jobs around that and kind of the stuff that didn't exist even six months ago. So I'm really curious to see how something that is getting disrupted that's very specific, like a lawyer or a doctor might evolve in the next couple of years as well. Yeah. Speaking of regulations, right? I do think that the stage is ripe for regulatory capture to protect certain classes. So it wouldn't be the first time that lawyers and accountants and financiers have leveraged the government to put in rules to prevent something that is maybe better economically for everyone as a whole, but worse for them. Agreed. Cool. Hey, Max, thank you so much for spending your time today. We ended one minute late here, but what I really enjoyed is, and I was thinking to myself, this is a German guy, he's going to be here bang on time, and he was on the dot, not a minute late, not a minute early, was on there, perfect, perfect timing. So thank you for joining us for precisely 90 minutes, Max. Yeah, good luck with Spoke AI, and we look forward to catching up and following your journey. Well, thanks for having me. Great to chat today. Yeah, thanks, Max.